We're in the third of our four-part series on the prophet Joel, and we're going to be reading together from Joel chapter 2, verse 17, if you want to turn to it. Joel 2, verse 17. While you're turning it to it, just to fill you in a little bit, uh, if you've missed any of the series, you can uh, go back on our website and watch them should, should you wish to do that. But we find in Joel chapter 1 that Joel is speaking to the children of Israel regarding a great um, locust plague that has hit the nation, not just once, but again and again through the years. And he describes it. And he explains that God is allowing this judgment in order to awaken them and to bring them back to be serious with him again. It wasn't that the people at this time were excessively sinning. There's no mention of huge idolatry or or terrible social injustice or sexual perversity. What it was that God had to deal with was complacency. The people at the time of Joel had become complacent when it came to the things of God. God was in the background. They didn't really need him. Uh, They paid lip service to him. So God allowed this tremendous repeating locust plague to come into the national experience in order to drive them back to him. In chapter 2, Joel repeats the description of these locust plagues, but in it he says this. He says, these locust plagues that have come into our nation... As bad as they are, you ain't seen nothing yet because these locust plagues, they they are given to you as a sample or a foretaste of the day of the Lord. Now, Joel 2 speaks about the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is when God finally steps into history in his fullness. God steps into history, uh, throughout history, we see him at work, but the day is coming and it's coming soon when God will fully step into history. That's what we call the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, we find out that the day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus. And this day of the Lord will have two aspects to it. On the one hand, it will have a great powerful, saving, delivering, restoring move come to it. When Jesus returns, all those that believe on earth and all those that have believed in the past that are are now in heaven and have died, they will be united in their new glorified bodies to meet Jesus and greet him in the air. And from that moment, God's people will know no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more crying, and no more dying. God will have saved them to the uttermost. That's happening on the day of the Lord. That's the one thing, that's one of the two things that happen. On the other hand, on the day of the Lord, God will put things right when it comes to justice. The great savior of the world will come for his people, but also he's the great judge of the the world. Revelations pictures him riding a great white horse coming to judge as well as to save. And he will judge. And he will judge every injustice that has ever taken place since the time when Adam and Eve 
fell in the Garden of Eden. And he will judge with complete justice and judgment will come. So what Joel is saying is that this locust uh, experience is a foretaste and a sample of the judgment side of the second coming. But we're going to read the sample of the other side of Jesus's second coming now in this passage, and this is God's saving, delivering work. So, Joel chapter 2, verse 17. Let the priests of the Lord, let the priests the Lord ministers weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you. And I'll drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up. He's speaking about the removal of the locust army for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear beasts of the field for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green for the tree has borne its fruit The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten." the creeping locust and the stripping locust and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You'll have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people shall never be put to shame. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'll display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So here in the message of the prophet Joel, and for those of you that have been going through this series with us, you know that that we have come through some very difficult passages. The, The locusts that were released as a judgment on God's people to call them back to him in seriousness. the the picture of the day of the Lord in chapter 2. But we also find that the people do return to God. They are shaken out of their complacency 
and their routine of living life without real reliance on God. And they call out to him. And in this passage, we hear that those that come back to God and call out to God, then they experience the manifestation of his great saving, delivering, restoring power. We've just read about that. And so earlier in chapter 2, we see that picture of the day of the Lord. They had a foretaste of that judgment that will be coming in the locusts. But here, they're about to have a foretaste of great, God's great saving, delivering, blessing power that will also be fully manifest at Jesus' return. And when we read this passage, we see that there is restoration at work. First, a physical restoration, and then even more importantly, we see a spiritual restoration. The physical, we see this as we read through chapter 1 and chapter 2. We saw the barrenness of the lands. Even the beasts were crying out because there was no food. The locusts had taken it all. But here, as we see this physical restoration, we see in this passage that the beasts, no longer need to fear, for the pastures have turned green. The tree is bearing its fruit, and it's not being devoured by the locusts. The fig tree and the vine tree. God has restored materially the blessings of his people. Now, this is important, because when we come to this passage of God's powerful restoring move, now perhaps we can understand a little bit about how God was allowing this terrible locust plague to take place because within that terrible plague were the seeds of future restoration and the seeds of even greater blessing than they were receiving. You know, when disasters take place, uh, we are looking at a foretaste or a sample of God's great judgment that will come on the day of the Lord, Jesus' return. But when we see these things take place in our lives or in our society, often within these very terrible disasters, there are the seeds of future hope, deliverance, and even blessing. God is at work. We're still ministering, praying, and, lo and looking after uh, the people of the Grenfell disaster that took place only a few short weeks ago. And a terrible disaster, one couldn't think more of a terrible disaster than what we saw take place there. And it's going to take a long, long time for people to even begin to be healed from the trauma that they experienced through that. A terrible event, terrible things taking place. Yet the strange thing is, is, and in, those, in that terrible situation, we find that in the ruins of that situation and people's lives, we have found that there are, in fact, seeds of future hope, deliverance, and restoration. We found that in that situation, a number of people, a significant number of people that we have ministered to and helped, have actually come to Christ uh, out of that disaster. Terrible that a situation like that took place, but people have found Jesus genuinely out of that. We've seen a community come together in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine uh, in the wake of that, of all different beliefs and no beliefs at all, to come together to try and, to try and help those that, 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 that are in need. You see, in the things that we go through in life that are difficult, problems, 
We live in a fallen world. We're pilgrims in an unholy land. And because we live in a fallen world, each one of us will in some way experience that fallenness in our lives and our experiences. Jesus does not say that Christians will not experience any of the tribulation of a fallen world. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but there is hope in that tribulation because Jesus has overcome. And one day he will return to bring us to him in full salvation. And so when these things take place, no matter how difficult or, or, or painful these situations that come into our lives or our society, always look in the midst of darkness, there will be seeds of light that God has planted. And so when we see this picture of the uh, terrible locust plague coming into Israel, it looked terrible. It looked like God had abandoned his people. God could have stepped in and he could have stopped that locust plague at source. We've just read in this chapter how God is now going to take the locusts and he's going to turn them back and he's going to destroy them and push them into the sea. Why did he allow it to take place in the first place? Many times these are our responses to tragedies, difficulties, obstacles and trials in our lives. Why, oh Lord? And at the time we can't see what he's up to, but Joel saw what he was up to. And that God in these places of pain has also placed seeds of future deliverance and blessing. You see, this locust, that army that God allowed to come into Israel was not an end in itself. God had a higher purpose. It was a judgment on the people that were being careless with God. Uh, but the judgment was also to bring them back to him so that they could experience higher levels and higher measures of blessing, both material and spiritual. Often as Pentecostals and Charismatics, uh, we can be in danger of trying to find the best bits of the Bible to preach. The bits that make people smile, the bits that are happy, the bits that have the promise, the bits that have the joy, the bits that, you know, the bits that have the conclusion. That's why it's important for us from time to time to go through books as they've been given to us by the Bible. So for us to jump in at uh, Joel chapter 2 verse 17 without first going through chapter 1 and 2, we'd miss the whole context. We'd just be looking at blessing. We wouldn't realize that God had to first deal with his people, and bring them to a place where they could handle the blessing. Can you imagine if there had been no locust uh, outbreak amongst the Israelites? They were careless with God. They, they were happy with the levels of prosperity and material uh, possessions that they had. They were happy with their spiritual lives. It was working for them. Imagine if God had taken what we've just read and just blessed them with extra blessing. Would that have turned them towards him? I don't think so. Well, would they have suddenly have, have been so touched by the blessing that they would all troop back to God and seek him seriously and break out of the commonplace routine that they had? No, they wouldn't. In fact, if God had poured out his blessing on them without sending the locust. Uh, plague, they would have been even more spoiled, even less inclined to follow God. The first act of spiritual first act of restoration that God did was through that terrible plague. It caused people's hearts to realize that without God, we are nothing. 
and that God is the supply of everything that we have, whether it's small or large. It shook them out of their complacency, and they turned to God. And in that turning to God, God was doing a great work in their lives. Even in difficult times, God is doing a great work in your life. No wonder that James in, the, in his epistle said, consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through various tests and trials. You think, well, how, how could he say that? Because he knew that God, even though it was a difficult trial you may be going through or a difficult test, God has not abandoned you. In fact, he's doing some of his best work in you through that trial to prepare you for greater blessing. It takes faith to trust God when you're going through a difficult time. And it takes great faith to have the faith of James who considered it joy when he was going through a great time because he knew that God was doing something unique in his life to produce something beautiful and to prepare him to be mature, lacking in nothing. Can we trust God in the good times as well as the best times? Joel says you can. If you cooperate with what God is doing, if you see that he's working even in the difficult things of life and that he's working and that one day what you're going through trusting God in the difficult times is preparing you for the greatest test, the test of his blessing. At the end of the last time I spoke to you, I mentioned how I'd gone through a test in my life and it wasn't a huge test, but I had gone through it. And I felt that I trusted God well and, and, and dealt with it according to kingdom principles. So when I'd gone through this test, I gave myself seven out of 10. So what I gave myself, I felt seven out of 10. Well, you know, that was it. And then I felt as I was pondering on this, I felt God speak to me on the inside. And I felt him say, well, well done. You got through that test. But then I heard this voice on the inside of me say, but you're not ready yet for my greatest test. I thought, oh, God. Fear hit me. I thought, what, what, who's going to die? What sickness has got? You know, and all these terrible things came into my, my mind. Well, God didn't leave me in, in fear because he hadn't finished his sentence. Uh, he, he had said, you're not ready yet for my greatest test, the test of my coming blessing. Now, part of me immediately said, yes, I am. <laughs> Give me the blessing now. But a deeper part of me knew exactly that I was not yet ready for the test of his blessing. You say, that's a strange thing to, to say, not ready for the test of his blessing. Well, look, God, God is testing and purifying us all of the time. I don't want you to go away and think, well, I'm just waiting for this massive test that Bruce says is going to come my way. Uh, it's not like that. God can give us little tests. The way you treat somebody who takes that seat that you've got your eye on on the tube during the morning. Uh, little things are as important to God as big things. You remember? He says, that which you've been faithful in the little. I'll give. Little things, little things are as important as the big things. The way you treat one another, the way you work and your diligence uh, as a Christian in the workplace these little things. God has a magnifying glass over the little things of life, and they mean so much more to him than they mean to us. And little things 
are important. And in fact, the little thin things fit us for the big things. You've been faithful in small things, you can handle big things. So these people that Joel was ministering to, if God had poured out the blessing, both the material blessing and more importantly, the spiritual blessing on them, before they'd been tried and tested, it would have ruined them even more. You're not ready yet for the test of my coming blessing. Are you ready for God's blessing? Are you really ready for God's blessing? I mean, if, let, let's talk about the, the material blessing that came, came first. There was the material blessing that was restored here in Joel. Then more importantly, and I'll come to that, the spiritual blessing was restored. What if God materially blessed you out of your socks? I mean, what if everything you wanted, you got? What if everything in, in life, everything that people seek after in life, the Gentiles seek after, what if you got the promotion of your dreams, the job of your dreams, the wife of your dreams, the husband of your dreams? I'm talking about those that aren't married, just in case you're wondering. What, what, if, you, what if you got the house of your dreams? What, what if everything you did materially prospered, everything was blessed, and everything people want in the world, fame and fortune, everything, whatever it is, God, you were just blessed with it, and there was nothing added to it. You were just blessed, blessed, blessed. If that was the case, I wonder how many people would actually be here at the 11 o'clock service if it happened to them. Seriously. In fact, there are people that maybe should be here this morning, but aren't here this morning because they can't handle the blessing that they've been given. They're out having recreation. They're out driving their new car. <laughs> They're out being with these wonderful people that God has put them with. They're too blessed to come to church. They're too blessed to turn to God. Why would they turn to God? Everything is wonderful. Everything is fine. How bad do things have to get before we turn to God? How bad do things have to get in our lives before we truly turn to God and put him back on the throne of our lives? Things had to get pretty bad to this complacent lot in Joel's day before they realized. I mean, I mean, it was like the first plague came. Oh, we'll get by. We'll get by. We've got some stores from last year. The second plague came. Oh, it's not that bad. We'll get by. And they looked at all these different methods. But when that third or fourth plague came, they were driven to their knees. They were driven to God. And although they were in a terrible material place, they were in the best spiritual place they could be. And we read about how these people cooperated with God. They heard God speaking, shouting through the pain that they were going through. And they responded to his megaphone and turned to him and they were restored to him. And because of that, God said, okay, I've been working in your life. You're now in a place of maturity where I can release the blessing without getting you spoiled. You ever seen a spoiled child in a toy shop? If you haven't seen them, you'll hear them because they'll end up screaming sooner or later, even though they've got more toys than anybody, any of the other kids that are there. Why? Because when you give a child whatever they want, they cease to value what's been given to them. 
So you give them, I want this, okay, I want that, okay, I want the other. And they have all these toys. And if you go into a spoiled child's room, you'll find loads of toys only played with once, some not even opened. Why? Because to them, they have no value to those toys. You take a poor child that's hardly got any toys at all, and you give them a toy. It doesn't even have to be the best toy, but you give them a toy, and you see how that child will cherish, care that toy, take care of that toy, because they have such value to it. Could it be that we don't properly value the blessing that we already have? It's fair to say, isn't it, that if you've never been in a place, a real place, and I know some of you have, a real place where you don't know where your next meal is coming, you know how to say thank you for food, even if the cook's not cooked it too good. Or if you've been in a place where you don't know, you really don't know where your next penny's coming from, then you appreciate the pounds. But if you've got the pounds, then do you really appreciate the pennies? Can I, can I, can I confess my sins to you today? <laughs> You'd love that, wouldn't you? No, I've been at times where I've been walking along and I've dropped some money and it's been a couple of pennies. And I've like, I don't even want to pick it up. I don't even want to pick, I'm like, oh, it's just a few pennies and I want to pick, and then I have to say, oh, God looks at the little things. Just a few pennies, in fact, you know, it's nice, it won't make a hole in my pocket. God looks at the little things and I go back and I pick up those pennies and then put them in, you know, some, somewhere. But God, you see, it, it's, it's, God wants to bless us. I mean, look at the great blessing here. Uh, he blesses the land. And then we see this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He, he redeems the locust years. You know, when you look back on your life, you may say, you know, I've wasted so much time in my life. Well, if you turn to God, that which you think is wasted, God will use as fertile ground for a harvest of his kingdom. You may have come to the Lord late, but what you will do in your late coming to the Lord will be greater than some do in their early coming to the Lord. You may think I've fritted away my inheritance. I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've, I've wasted my life. Sometimes I look back at my life and I, I cringe at how I lived. I cringed at what I did with my life. And I think, what a waste. If only I'd known now what I knew then, but I felt God say to you, it wouldn't have made any difference. It was your path. You had to walk it. But that which we wasted in former times can crystallize something magnificent and of great spiritual importance right now if we only see God's hand at work in it. We see this spiritual blessing in verse 28. Now, when we read about, uh, I will pour out my spirit, that would immediately, with many of you, think of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out like Jesus promised. And they are speaking in other tongues and they, are, they, they can hardly contain the blessing, the Father's blessing of the Holy Spirit that has hit their lives. And they're stumbling out of the upper room and people think they're drunk. But Peter knows what's happened. happened. And in Acts 2, verse 15, he says... For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour in the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision. 
hearts. Your old men shall dream dreams. He read it in Joel. So Peter recognized that this was part of the fulfillment of the Joel prophecy. Now, as I said, as Pentecostals and Charismatics, we're in danger of going to what we consider the best bits in the Bible without reading them in context. We'll go to the he poured out his spirit bit in Joel, but we won't spend time in that terrible locust plague in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the great turning to the Lord in seriousness that took place before they were ready for the blessing. And sometimes we can do the same with Acts. We go straight to the day of Pentecost. We say, Lord, send the blessing. Send the Holy Spirit. Because although Joel prophesied a material restoration, the greatest blessing that God can ever give you while you're here on earth is the blessing of more of his Holy Spirit. More of his Spirit working inside you. More of his Spirit intervening and micromanaging the circumstances around you. The greatest thing that you can experience on earth is more of the Holy Spirit intervening and working in your life and circumstances. It is the greatest blessing. The greatest blessing God has to give to us is his Holy Spirit. And here it is, poured out in massive measure on the day of Pentecost. But that's where we start. But Joel teaches us the cycle of God calling people to him and preparing them in maturity before he gives them the blessing. So that when God's blessing comes, you'll be mature enough to handle the blessing for kingdom purposes. So many people have been spoiled by the blessing, both material and spiritual. But God wants a people that he has worked hard in and have come to him and are ready to handle the kind type of anointings, material blessings, spiritual blessings and authorities that can take the kingdom of God forward without them being destroyed on the way or spoiled by the blessing. Well, before the day of Pentecost, came, a lot had happened to those disciples. Jesus had handpicked the 12 and he'd spent three years preparing them for the outpouring of, of the Spirit. Three years discipling them on a daily basis. Three years dealing with their many faults. Can you imagine if the day of Pentecost had been poured out on the 12 apostles on the first day that they'd been called to follow Jesus? Arguing about who was the greatest arguing about who could do the best miracles, more interested in signs and wonders than souls. Peter, who had not yet come to the place where, 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 where he was prepared not to deny Jesus in front of a, 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 a young woman. Or Thomas, full of unbelief. I mean, Jesus was working three years. He did many miracles. He preached to many thousands. But Jesus' greatest work for those three years of ministry were in 12 men's hearts to prepare them for the blessing. And so on that day, they and those that had followed Jesus closely, those that had not only followed Jesus in his three years of ministry, but in the 50 days between the day of resurrection and, the, and, and Pentecost, Jesus in his resurrected form had prepared the people. They had gone to the upper room and they'd sought the Lord. There were thousands when Jesus had, uh, was raised from the dead that saw him, but, there was a, but it got whittled down to 300 in an, who were ready in the upper room. 300. But they were the ones that were prepared 
and they were the ones that were ready. And when God poured out his blessing on the day of Pentecost, it didn't spoil the disciples. They were ready to handle that kind of blessing, that kind of power. And the rest of the book of Acts shows us how that blessing flowed into thousands of people's lives, into the Gentile world. God had even prepared a man called Paul to be able to carry the kind of blessing we're talking about. But if you're a student of church history and you move on after Acts, you'll find that very, very soon, very, very soon after the history of the book of Acts, the church is going all haywire. Because many of those that took the place of the apostles, many of them had not been tried, trusted, tested, and trained like they had. They couldn't handle the blessing. That they had taken the blessing for granted. And church history very soon was plunged into all kinds of difficult uh, situations. The days of the blessings of Acts of the Apostles were shortened by people who couldn't handle the blessing, who took the blessing for granted, and who weren't finally prepared by God to handle that type of blessing. They needed their locust experience, I guess. Now, I've written a book on revivals in Great Britain, revivals through the ages in Great Britain, because Joel is a pattern of revival. And in great revivals, what you often see is a nation or an area of people at a very low ebb. I mean, it's dark, dark, dark. Some sort of locust experience, spiritual or, or material has taken place, and God is forgotten, and no one's turning to the Lord. But in the midst of that darkness, God raises up a people to seek his face. And then God answers them and we get the great Wesleyan revival, the Methodist revival. And God pours out his spirit in a fresh Pentecost and, and all of a sudden the blessing flows and thousands of people get saved. And, and it's just a wonderful move of redemption, not just in the church, but also it spills out into society having effects for generations. But unless the people that inherit the blessing also respect the blessing, the blessing can soon turn to judgment. So we see by the end of John Wesley's life, he was lamenting over Methodists. He was basically saying, you know, they're not like they used to be. They've lost their fire. They've lost their purpose. This happens in many moves of God. The early generation, they, they are so grateful for God's intervention and his outpouring because they knew what it was like beforehand. They'd come out of great darkness into great light. They'd come out of a famine spiritually into a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they appreciated it and they stewarded the blessing and the blessing didn't spoil them. But the next generation comes along. They were born into the blessing. They don't know what it's like to have any locust plague. They, they don't know what it's like. Everything is blessed. Everything is milk and honey. Everything is outpouring. And they take it for granted and they take God for granted and the seeds of judgment have been planted. And the greatest uh, picture of this is Jesus. And I won't turn to it. We don't need to. We're going to come to a close in a few moments. But in Luke chapter 23, cell leaders in your notes, I put, sorry, in Matthew 23, verse 37, cell leaders, I put Luke by mistake, but in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to bring you into my bosom like a mother hen brings in its, check, its chicks, but you wouldn't have any of it. And then he says to his disciples, see this temple? 
Not one brick will be left standing. God's judgment came. The greater the blessing, the, 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 the greater potential of judgment, but also the greater the judgment, the greater potential of the blessing. We've seen that in Joel. This happens personally and corporately, community and nationally speaking. And so Jesus said, you've had God's own son amongst you. You've had not just a revival move, you've had the revival, the Messiah, the anointed one amongst you, Jerusalem, and you've rejected the blessing and you've turned from the blessing and you're going to have to pay the price for that. They'd had a sample of the great saving deliverance power of the day of the Lord in Jesus himself, and by and large, they'd rejected it. And so now, on AD 70, Jerusalem would have a great sample of the other side of the day of the Lord, the judgment of those that reject God. Well, as we come to a close now, we have one more session that we will have. We will see that God is Lord of the nations. But as we respond to the message of Joel today, we see in our lives that God, God wants to bless, but he doesn't want to spoil. And sometimes God will allow us to go through difficult times, but it's not for its own sake. Those difficult times have within them the seeds of God's glory and what he wants you to become and eventually the blessing he wants you to experience. If only we understood this, life would make a lot more Please bow your heads in prayer. Could there be someone here today? And you need to get right with God. You say, well, what do you mean? Our whole life should be lived in the light that the day of the Lord is coming. And to those that have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that day is going to be the best day ever. Full salvation is going to come to us. But for those that reject the Lord, that day is going to be the worst day ever because you will be found in your sins and you will be judged in your sins because you've rejected your Savior, God's answer to your spiritual needs. You say, how can I look forward to the day of the Lord? How can I be saved? That was the message of Joel. If anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. That was the message also of Peter. All you have to do is call on the Lord. If you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he paid the price so you don't have to on that day. And if you believe he's raised from the dead and you're ready to follow him, all you have to do is say, forgive me, Lord, and your sins will be forgiven you. Your past sins, your present sins, your future mistakes, your future sins will all be, you will be saved. And then God will work on you ready for his blessing.